parenthetical statement, for the children be not yet born, either having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. All right, so that's kind of where we left off. We've gone quickly through our outline, and we'll zip through it. You see it here at the top. We've looked at Roman number one, Israel's privileged past. Then we looked at their partitioned past, and this separation of the seed of Abraham. Uh, those verses we just read, verse 6 and following, dealt with parentage versus promise, or promise versus parentage, as we've already studied. And we made these observations as we got down to the predestined salvation versus privileged service. And we, we've come to understand just a couple of weeks ago, so crucial to understanding the text and, and honestly the entirety of the book of Romans and the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, is the fact that it's not talking about predestined salvation. Nowhere are we told that God has applied the same principle of election in salvation or to salvation as he does in the election to service and choosing us to do something, to serve in one way or the other. When we came to understand this passage is very much about that. We'll see if we even expound upon that this evening in some verses that we look at. We also made this observation, and this is where we get into verse 12, or verse 11 into 12 too. The fact is this, that God chooses whom he will, when he will, for what he will. That's God's sovereign choice. A sovereign choice is one that no one else has the right to challenge, question, or to bring any doubt against. It's his choice. He doesn't have permission from anybody, and he can make a sovereign choice. And in that choice, he chooses whom he will when he will, for what he will. Uh, then we've made this statement, there is no good or evil he uses as the information upon which to make the statement. And we'll, again, develop that a little bit. So what we come to understand is this, as we now delve into the next few verses, the fact is we don't control, in, in the area of service, we don't control which talents we receive. We don't control how many gifts and talents that we have. We, we don't control what area of ministry God has called us to, but we did understand this, and the takeaway from last, two weeks ago, we do control if we are that faithful steward in all that he's given us. That's where it comes down now to my level. This is the practicality of it. God chooses whom he will to gift who he will for service in different positions. Now my responsibility is to be the faithful steward of all that he has given me to what he has called me to do. That's my job, my responsibility, and that's my focus. God is a God that makes sovereign choices. We get that. He chose Jacob and his descendants as his choice servants while Esau was relegated to serving his younger brother. So God chose Jacob and and Isaac and those to serve him. And he said, okay, Esau, you're, you and your descendants are going to serve the older. And uh, we understand that. But in his sovereign choices, they're made in the area of privileged service, not predestined salvation. In other words, it's not based on character or conduct. So verse 11 establishes that for the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil. So it's not conduct. It's not character that the purpose of God, according to his sovereign choice, election, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. 
So who puts the difference between an Esau and a Jacob? And who puts the difference in these and so forth? It's God. It's the one who called, the one who makes the sovereign choice. That is God. So who makes the difference between a choir member and a Sunday school teacher? Who makes the difference between a deacon and a, and a pastor? It's God who chooses. It's God who makes that choice in his sovereign will and guidance and direction. And so we get that. So the question is this. Then, okay, if that's the case, then God must have hated Esau and Ishmael before they were even born. I mean, that's just reasoning because obviously, boy, it says that. Look at verse number 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Well, there it is. God hates Esau. Okay? And if you'd like to fight with your sibling, you can point that out. That, hey, God must hate you. Yeah, now look, he made you the way. No, just kidding. Don't say that. Okay? No, that's, but that's what they're saying. Reading in the verse, that's what it said. God hated Esau. That would be something hard to reconcile, wouldn't it? If we said that God hated Esau before he was even born, that, I, I mean, God looked at Esau as he was just in the womb. He said, listen, Esau, I hate you. I disdain you. I abhor you. I, 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 I'm vehement against you. Now, that, we, we, boy, we kind of re- recoil at that, don't we? That thought that God would look at a baby in a womb and, and say, I hate you. And yet some in their interpretation of this passage almost want us to think that. That God would look at somebody in the womb and say, okay, now I'm going to send you to hell. And I, I mean, I don't know about you, but in, you know, human, humans have adopted a statement of telling someone to go to hell when they hate somebody, haven't they? When they're angry, they're mad, and, and, and they'll look at something, say it outright, it's like a curse upon them. When they're mad, they're angry, they're hate, full of hate, they'll say something like that. Why? Because we deduce that if someone sent someone to hell, man, they must be full of hate, huh? So some would look at this passage and say, look, see, God chooses who he wants for salvation. We get it. It's not about salvation. It's about service. But we also understand this, because when we look at this passage and when we look at Old Testament passage, it, it, it is not saying that God hates Esau like we think in terms of hate. What do we know about the character of God? Well, in, in the latter part of the New Testament, we are told that God is love. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved who? The world, all sinners. For God so loved the world. See, he does not say, the scriptures do not establish in any shape or form that God hates babies before they're even born, that he abhors them one way or the other. But we know human parents like that, don't we? I've had friends or acquaintances who they've looked at me and shared their past and something, and they said, you know what, my parents didn't really love me. In fact, my father, he wished I was a boy, but when I came out a girl, he just never really had to have any relation. Isn't that sad? But that's true, isn't it? We've heard of things like that, or vice versa, whatever the case is. I've heard of parents telling their kids, I, I, I just don't love you, man. I, I, I wish you weren't born because you're nothing but a burden to me. You're nothing but a, uh, just a, a, boy, a restriction and everything on me. And, oh, you make life so difficult. And We know human parents like that. We, we understand that they're out there, but that is not what God is like. Your Abba Father is in no way, shape, or form anything like that. When we read this verse, sometimes we look at it from a human perspective. What we know of hate. Boy, we know about hate crimes today, don't we? 
We know of things being classified as hate and rooted and grounded in hate. Do not be mistaken as we read even in the King James here where it says that he hated Esau. We, we understand that this is not in the definition or the terms as we define it today. It's not God's character. So what are we talking about here? Well, you see it in your outline here, letter C. There, this passage is about a sovereign preference versus supreme abhorrence. See, as supreme, God is not abhorring someone. He's not showing great hatred for someone. That's not at all what he's talking about here. He is literally talking about preference as it applies even to this passage. And certainly Isaac being preferred above Ishmael for privilege. Uh, Even the idea, too, of the fact that Jacob was preferred over Esau to be part of the lineage of the promise of, of privilege. But Pastor Henry, doesn't uh, the passage say hate here? Well, it sure does. But don't we know what the Scriptures, how they use the term hate? Well, we do. We ought to. The, the Scriptures make it very clear. Often God uses the term hate as it is. And again, we'd have to dig into the Greek a little bit more, into the uh, original languages. We'd have to understand that these words are translated, and sometimes they're limited by the English word that the translators used. And so it is. We know that he uses it to express and enhance his description about preference, that is, his preferring of someone over someone else. So it's a matter of preference. Um, For instance, one of the great examples of that is found in Luke chapter 16. For sake of time, I'll just throw it up here. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and man. Now listen, this is a great verse to help us to understand. Nowhere, I mean, even the most uh, novice Bible student or scholar would be able to look at this verse and say, listen, when we see the word hate here, he's not speaking of literally hating masters like we think of hate today. That's really not what the verse is teaching at all. It's talking about preferring one another, and to drive it home, what does Christ say at the end of the verse? No man can serve. In fact, he says it both at the beginning and the end. No man can serve two masters. It's a matter of preference. It's a matter of saying, okay, you can't, you can't just say uh, serve equally, prefer both of them. No, no, no. Something's going to get the priority in your life. Something is going to have first place in how you live your life. Something will get the preference. Something will be preferred. In other words, we'd say this. You can only preferentially serve God or you can preferentially serve mammon, money, but not both. You must make a choice of preference. See, tonight, you've made a choice. Either you're going to live your life unto money and wealth and possessions, and you have preferred it, much like God preferred Isaac over Ishmael, much like God preferred uh, Jacob over Esau. The fact is, it is a matter of preference, and the idea is priority. Now, God develops it. Jesus Christ develops it more. We don't want to use just one passage as a substantiation passage. So let's look at another one. Luke chapter 14. Notice it, 14 verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, he covered the whole family tree, didn't he? It seems like. Yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
Oh, man, same Greek word in all three passages, whether Romans chapter 9, Luke 16, or Luke 14. Um, can I tell you right now, when I went into the ministry, I didn't go to mom and dad. Okay, God's called me. I hate you. That probably wouldn't have gone over well. They didn't do that. Hey, when, when you came to get saved, you didn't go home. And you didn't say, hey, mom, dad, I, I've chosen to trust Christ, and I, I'm going to get baptized, which means I'm deciding to follow him with the rest of my life. So mom and dad, I hate you. Some of your parents might say, good, get out. We've been wanting that room. No. We didn't say that. I hate No, we understand that. What's it on? Preference. Preference, right? Preference. We're giving priority. We're giving first place to God over them. I mean, think of it in this sense. It doesn't mean that I don't love them. It doesn't mean that you don't love your family, that you abhor them. It doesn't mean that they're not important to you. It doesn't mean anything like of how we define the term, the English term hate today in a very confined, limited sense. What it's simply saying is priority rise, preference-wise. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think Esau, looking, looking at Jacob and all the blessings in the years to come, don't you think Esau would have been tempted to say, man, God must hate me? <laughs> looking at that preference. I mean, just looking at the preference. Like, I'd certainly prefer Jacob and, and his descendants and so forth. And, and really, we'll see that in a moment here. That's where we have to be careful. Now, think of it this way, and I think this is so good. One of my favorite preachers, Adrian Rogers, in explaining the text, he's talking about his wife, Joyce. And uh, he made this statement. He said this about her. He goes, do you think because I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, I hate the girl named Joyce? That's his wife. I love her all the more. She knows that she gets far more love out of me being second in my life than she'd never get being first because Jesus Christ is first. It's a great statement, isn't it? I mean, he gets it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, when we come to this passage, you think, wow, you put somebody ahead of your wife? You put somebody ahead of your husband? Wow, yeah, I put Jesus Christ. But boy, your wife and your husband ought to know, or your husband ought to know, that they have it much better off because Jesus Christ is first. But it's this kind of preferential we're talking about. That's what the, the word in the Greek certainly means in each of these passages. It is a preference, given preference to that person. We understand that God is not saying he hates Esau. It's the differentiation of promise and parentage. We've seen it already play out in this passage. Those of the bloodline of Abraham are not all Jews, and those who are all Jews are not of the faith lineage of Abraham. It gives us the explanation of God's sovereign choice and election within the realm of privileged service and preference while eliminating the supposed proof for predestined salvation. Gets rid of it. As we come to understand the passage, we, it clearly explains that God's choice is in privileged service. It's not about abhorrence or hate. It's just simply a preference. And there, then it gives clarity to the workings of God in our lives, and certainly even here at the nation of Israel. Paul anticipated the human response. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. So he anticipated you and I said, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair, right? God, you made this choice, and that's not fair. 
uh, he anticipated. What's interesting is this. Paul, in verse 13, and I don't mean to go back, but I want you to understand this. Some of you will see it there. When Paul writes, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, it also helps to understand the Old Testament context. He's quoting out of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 2, and the first part of verse 3 is what we have quoted here. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, when, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And the Lord said, yet I love Jacob, and I hate did Esau. Now what's interesting is you go and you were to read Malachi there and understand the context of both chapter 1 and the, the following chapters. He is not speaking of the individuals Jacob and Esau. You know who he's speaking of? The nations. In fact, he's literally speaking of the Edomites who came from Esau and certainly the Israelites who came from Jacob. Excuse me. So we see now, I want you to understand this. Now get this, don't miss this tonight. God's sovereign choices operate both individually and nationally. As he speaks of Israel and Edom, there's no doubt that God preferred Israel. Now let me ask you this. Did Israel live in a way that they really deserved God's preference? No way. If anything, we look at Israel and say, wow, God sure was merciful and gracious. He still preferred them. He still gave them preference, and that's an amazing thought. But it happens both individually and nationally. Could I submit to you tonight, in light of this text, I, I would submit to you that I believe there are some nations that have been preferentially treated by God, by choices that he's made. I, I would have to submit to you that I believe both England and the United States of America have enjoyed some of the blessing through the sovereign choices of God. We have had an unprecedented exposure to the Word of God. Do you realize that from our beginning, that literally this book has been quoted, it's been taught, it has been preached more in this land than I do believe in any other land in its entirety. Now, we might say, well, Israel preached a lot. I get that, but you know what they left out? The New Testament. <laughs> The new covenant. So in its entirety, I have to say the U.S. and before that, England was, was certainly a, a close second, if not tied. The fact is this. We have been privileged as a nation. We have enjoyed preference. And I understand sometimes that's in reference or in response to obedience or pursuing God. But the fact is this. Who makes the sovereign choice? God does. So America has enjoyed what America has enjoyed in our founding and in our spiritual influences and our godly forefathers from George Washington to others. Boy, we've enjoyed that, and it's all to the glory of God. It's all to his glory. He, we've been blessed, and so has England. Can I also say this? I, I think it's amazing. As you go back and look at history, probably the two nations that have sent out the most missionaries are England and the United States. So we've had a privileged place of service, much like Jacob, this idea of service. We as a nation have enjoyed a privileged position to serve God. I think it's pretty amazing, don't you, that our nation has been able to send out so many missionaries to evangelize the world. I think that's great. That's fantastic. Now we look at America and some of the things it's done in the past, we certainly have not always been deserving of that, but I sure am thankful that God has chosen to bless us. So understand this is both individually and nationally. It doesn't have to do with salvation. And it doesn't mean all Americans or all the English are saved. And not, nothing like that. Nor am I equating America with Israel. Don't say that either. I'm just merely pointing out that God's sovereign expressions of mercy and blessing 
to some is part and parcel for the will of God throughout the ages, and it does not mean God hates some people. So we don't look at Spain. We, we don't look at China, and we say, oh, look at America. It's so blessed. And boy, God must hate China. God must hate those countries. No, that's not at all it. We just ought to be thankful for how God has blessed us. His sovereign choice. And, and my friend, I, I'm thankful to be an American, certainly, but the reason I'm thankful to be American because God has blessed America. America is not inherently great. So I'm an American. I love America. I'm born American. I'm as American a mutt as anybody else. But America is not America that we revere and love because of anything inherent to America. America is America because God has allowed it to be blessed. Okay, So let's not forget that. Uh, Reality is this, though. Does God love the Chinese? Yeah. God loves the Chinese and the Japanese. God loves the, the, uh, the Indians and India. And God, God, you name the nation, the Spaniards and Spain. He loves them. Now, they may not have enjoyed the preferential treatment in a sense. We get that. But it does not mean God hates some and he loves, as some would inerrant or errantly interpret this passage. Let me put it this way. How many of you have DTE as your electric? Anybody in here? Okay, good. Several. Great. Fantastic. Okay. Mickey does back there, so I'll pick on Mickey. Okay. Let's say Mickey had, during praise time, not only Mel's good answer to surgery or anything going well, but he also said, you know what? The funny thing happened to me. He said, you know, we were behind a month of paying a bill. We missed the bill. DTE called, and they said, listen, hey, you you haven't paid this month's bill, so don't worry about it. We're going to take care of it. In fact, we're going to take care of the next 11 months bill for you. So you don't have to pay anything, any more electric or anything like that. And, and he gave that praise. And we'd be like, amen. And then on the inside of us, we're like, man, I have DTE. I didn't get that phone call. And we started like, man, what? I mean, I'm all happy for him and everything. But DTE didn't call me. Why don't I get that? And then maybe we take it a step farther. And tonight or tomorrow morning, we call, hey, DTE. There's this, there's this guy named Mickey McDowell. He said he got you guys back. Is there any way that I can get in on this? And, and come to find out, it's only for Mickey McDowell. Now listen to me. What is human nature's response to that? That's not fair. Why does he get that? Because I chose to use him as an illustration. And we all know DTE is never going to do that. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, but it, now, now think about it. Isn't that our normal response? Isn't it? Hey, why is that? And then what happens? What, what do we do? Well, that's just like DTE. They can't do anything right. Yeah, DTE, I tell you, they're just a joke of a company. And we start der- uh, being derogatory about DTE. We attack their character because they were nice to someone else. And you say, hey, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, you may not do, but you were tempted. You were tempted. You see, that's exactly what Paul anticipates in verse 14. He says, listen, does this make God unrighteous? Because he prefers some and he chooses some for a place of privilege and of service, and yet others are, uh, he does not. Does that make God unrighteous? Literally, is DTE unrighteous because they were a blessing to Mickey, but not you and me? They pay his and they raise ours. Woohoo! <laughs> Does that make DTE unrighteous because of their expression of uh, showing grace and mercy in one circumstance? Well, literally, that's what Paul's addressing here. 
See, the fact is this. Now, don't miss it. If God handed out blessings, privileged position for service even, or even salvation for that matter, based upon righteousness, then nobody could serve him. Nobody would be saved if salvation were based upon that. See, the sovereign choice of God is a vehicle, and we see it here in the next statement, of God's amazing grace and mercy. It's not about His unrighteousness. It is about the wonderful mercy and grace of God. See, God shows it to whom He chooses to show it. The object of His choosing. Paul's making the point that there's no person who has the right to question God about his choices or to say that he is unrighteous, especially a God who's already promised that all things are going to work together for good, that he wants the best for each person, that, that his doings, his work, his will is beyond our understanding and comprehension and our knowledge. Look at verse 15, and we'll have to bring it to a close because if we open up the next statement or the next part, we'll probably go too long. So look at verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The great privilege of the sovereign choice of God. Now listen to me, okay? You and I are fallible. We can make choices of showing mercy and compassion and so forth, and certainly we do. But even in our decisions of showing mercy and compassion, do you realize sometimes we get it wrong? But God never does. What God does, God does right all the time. And it is for you and I to be faithful stewards of what he gives us, but also in turn, our, the call upon us is to do what? Trust him. Trust His sovereign choices. Trust His omniscience. Trust the promises that He's given us. Next week, we're going to get into it, and it's a tremendous next section when He gives illustrations of verse 15 in action. From the Old Testament, He goes back and looks at Moses. He looks at Israel. He looks at Pharaoh. And He says, okay, let me show you how this plays out. Let, let me demonstrate it. Paul says, from your history, our history, let me show you how this plays out in the lives of our forefathers and people we know. And I, I think it's a crucial part. And so we'll pause for tonight. We'll get back at it next Wednesday night.